Welcome to Covenant Conversations, episode number 20. Today, Peter Washkowitz and I, Shweta Rao, have the pleasure of speaking to Elizabeth Tabus. Elizabeth Tabus is a leveraged finance and special situations partner at Reed Smith, focused on complex credit solutions for borrowers, sponsors, non-bank lenders, and other alternative lenders. Hey, Liz, so happy to have you on our podcast today. Thanks for having me, Shweta. I'm glad to be here. Um, I look forward to talking about CERTA and sacred rights and, you know, I, I guess all the non-prorata sharing provisions that the New York and U.S. courts have been looking at and, and, and maybe coming out with results that people find surprising, although now I think there's a pretty consistent chain of case law there, which is that in New York and in the U.S., they're going to look to the plain meaning, i.e. the four square corners of your contract, not what you wish was there. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we, let's actually just jump right in since you uh, since you mentioned sort uh, of, you know, that's kind of on top of uh, a lot of investors' minds still. Um, you know, obviously, the, the company just did a, a super priority up tier exchange and the issues uh, involved essentially, you know, whether the deal implicated the pro rata sharing provisions whether it was just some amendments that needed to be done. And also it looked at, you know, uh, open market purchases versus assignments. So it involved a whole a bunch of different issues. And really it kind of came down to, you know, how do you interpret these provisions and what's the interplay between them? I, I mean, so as a practitioner, I mean, what, you know, what was your take on CERTA and just kind of big overall themes that you, you, you know, you took away from the, from the deal? I, I think... Sort of looking at both the sort of public portion uh, of the documents and the court records, what what I, I took away from it, which people may not like the result, but I, I think it makes sense, which is that the document had pretty flexible Dutch auction provisions, which allowed for non pro rata open market purchases and didn't require that, that they went out to everyone. And, you know, in creating the relationship, they treated those open market purchases not as a repayment of the loans, but just as you would treat any other assignment you would make as a lender. And so therefore they weren't treated as loan proceeds and they didn't need to be paid down. The other piece that people get, I think, worked up about, and you also see it in Murray, is really required lenders amendments prior to making the exchange that really either strip the documents or water down the documents in the case of Surter, allow for the uptearing of debt in a way that obviously the people who remain in that debt may not like. But one thing that I think it's important to note there, and I think it's what the court notes in Surter, the New York state court, um, is that if you wanted to have a no subordination provision as one of your sacred rights, i.e. A, a right that required the vote of each lender, each affected lender, you should have put it in the document. And what they had in the document was that you would need a consent to release all of the guarantees or all of the security. And the court made the position and it's consistent with what you see in Not Your Daughter's Genes and, and a few other cases 
is that if you really meant subordination, you should have said subordination, subordination and release of liens and guarantees are, 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 are two distinctly different things. And I, I don't think this is a new trend. You see it in the bond market and what you see in many bonds is that they require the consent of all affected holders to lower the priority of the debt. And so, so I, I think that is where you would end up going if you wanted those rights. And I, I, I definitely know some of the funds that I work with, if they are in a new money deal, will make sure that the, that sacred right is specific. Um, because the courts won't read it in and, and they're not the same thing. Um, that, that said, I, I think the other piece of it, which is a really important one to talk about and one, Peter, that we were talking about before we started this is, you know, pro rata sharing provisions. And, and I'm gonna get a little technical here, but I, I think it's important. Um, it's important to read them because some pro rata sharing provisions flatly require that all payments made by the borrower for the benefit of the lenders under their agreement are required to be allocated on a pro rata basis. Others require that only payments that are due and payable. So you could think of like a scheduled interest or principal payment. But if you have one of those and let's say you had a payment that wasn't yet due and payable and you amended the provision under required lenders vote rather than all lenders or all affected lenders vote, to make that payment not due and payable, it would never run through the prorata provisions. Or you get into not your daughter's genes or, or sorry, not your daughter's, CERTA and some of the other agreements where you have just a whole bunch of exceptions from when you need to make a prorata payment. And then, you know, they can become really meaningless. Um, and so I think the important note there for investors is if you're investing in a new deal and you want something specific, ask for that specifically. And if you're a minority investor coming into an existing deal, make sure you understand what you can and cannot do um, because you may not have a vote, especially if it's a rec lenders vote, you know, simple majority for those things. Don't, don't expect that the courts will read it in. Peter, I don't know if you have any other sort of thoughts from yeah i i mean so i, I think about la last year maybe uh, towards the beginning of the year you know uh, uh, this kind of issue as to you know what's in the document what what you know can things can intent be read in you know it came up a lot in in windstream as well i mean there you know it was a sale leaseback transaction and you know while it it didn't explicitly say it, it pertained i believe to you know certain restricted subsidiaries um, it, it was kind of essentially implied. And so I'm actually just wondering, you know, if you are a lender, let's say in CERTA, um, you know, could, are, are there certain, uh, you know, I guess jurisdictions that you could go to, to, um, you know, for a more friendly, uh, interpretation of these, of these provisions or, you know, when you said it's, it's, it's kind of becoming, you know, uh, I, I guess rule of law now, um, you know, essentially, could you forum shop if you want to, you know, bring a suit for interpretation of these of these questions? It's an interesting of, question. Of and and, and one thing that we have sort of speculated on, and, and obviously most of the documents we are talking about are, are New York law and, and New York courts 
look for the four square corners. But if, if you hop across the pond to England, for example, English courts, as Shweta tells me, will look beyond the documents and understand the meaning. And so there's a possibility that you might end up with a slightly different read in those jurisdictions. Shweta, I don't know if you want to hit on sort of the English case law here, and then maybe we can talk a second about having a more educated populace that are more specifically debt lawyers looking at the documents versus a, a, a general court. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question you bring up in terms of the syndicated loan agreements or indeed, uh, well, bond indentures won't be applicable because they're generally governed by New York law, but syndicated loan agreements and creditors governed by English law, we've not really seen that much case law. I mean, my sense is that parties in the US seem to litigate more quickly than um, sophisticated parties that enter into agreements over here do. Uh, from a general interpretive point of view of interpretation of contracts, the standards are a bit different. In New York, I'm told, it's you you look at you know at the four corners of the document. You look at what the words say, and that's how you interpret them. And then you don't bring in other interpretive tools such as what the intention might be what might be commercially, what might have been intended to be the commercial agreement into um, the case unless there is ambiguity. So that's a little bit different in English law where they tend to sometimes take a more holistic approach if there is ambiguity in the documentation when they're interpreting. But like I say, there hasn't been that much case law uh, with these specific contracts in mind. Yeah, I was going to say, in the U.S., I think, and we, we've talked about it before, I think part of the reason you see more case law in the U.S. is because you are not paying the cost of everyone involved if you lose. And, and a lot of these litigations could be taken on a contingent basis. Um, but there is some cases, and, and Peter, you brought up Windstream, and Windstream, the, the words around the document mattered, right? Because they had the default, which was actually, there was a daylight between the public statements and the private statements and in the document and how they crafted it. And that was what sort of gave rise to the further sort of discovery and, and litigation. And, and so I, again, I think for investors, it's, it's important to look at the words both within the documents, but also with outside the documents, if you're looking to manufacture a default. The the other piece on form shopping, which we'll talk about, but I, I don't see it ever becoming a trend, but I will note it just because I think it's important to note, is that it's possible if you had a, an agreement with an arbitration clause instead, the result might be different if you sort of went to specialist finance arbitrators rather than general commercial judges. Um, and so maybe part of the reason for the sort of faith in the heroic contract, as it were, is because you're relying on generalist documents who really, you know, generalist ju judges who are looking at the document as the main sort of source of a law. But I, I don't see it as a trend that anyone's going to go to arbitration. And, and I, I think even more to the point, 
I, I think that you end up in a lot of the cases that are litigated like Serta and Murray and not your daughter's genes in cases where at the front end you had a different investor set than you had at the back end. And so you you had maybe a lot of CLOs and a lot of you know people who were willing to buy into this great deal with a great sponsor. And if they had been very difficult, they probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to buy in initially. And you had a really short comment period because the deal was oversubscribed. And and, and so then when you get into the secondary market, it's traded hands and, and you have the second set of investors who have bought at 60 cents on the dollar. And you're now trying to do an up-tiering transaction. And they're really smart on these provisions and they're really focused on them. I think they're not the same thing. So so part of the reason you see these documents is because the syndicated loan market for the last two years has been so strong and the common periods are so short. And if you're really difficult, you get pushed out. And I think also with that, if you're represented as sponsor, you know, a lot of us would do two and three full sets of documents and you would end up just taking the leakiest documents and the most flexible documents as the ones you went with. And, and so if it was a choice between a syndicated deal and a private deal, and the deal that offered you the most flexibility, it is probably the deal that you went with. And definitely as people are pricing deals, they consider into that price, not only your margin and your fees, but how much flexibility you'll have in, in, in a downside case. So I think for the syndicated lenders, part of it is that although you might want to enforce those standards, you may not be able to if you want to continue doing deals. And so I think there's a really interesting dichotomy there that you have sort of a very big, deep market. And if you want to do those deals, you know, people look to sort of the path of least resistance to do the deals. And do you think, I mean, this is to both you know, Liz uh, and to Peter, do you think that given the time we are in, in the midst of um, another economic crisis, the balance of uh, negotiating power might shift more towards lenders and they might be able to reclaim some of the lost ground in terms of actually tightening documents. So I, I think there's two baskets here. And, and Peter, you, you obviously read every document in the market where I, I, I read some and, and work on a lot of client deals. And what it seems like, it seems like there's two classes of citizens. You have the good assets are hard to find and those deals are competitive and you're seeing those terms be loose and people wanting to do those deals. I mean, I, I was just on the call, uh, call this morning with a client um, and they're like, yeah, all our banks are reaching out because they wanted to re do a deal. Um, and then you have the other set, which are the more esoteric deals, the harder to finance assets. And those, I think in those deals, you're finding that lenders are pushing back. They're you know, saying, no, we're not going to do it. I mean, we, we have seen in one deal where someone wanted to do an up-tiering transaction and the law firm on the other side who represented the borrower said to our client, who's a non-bank lender, hey, guess what? We're going to do this up-tiering transaction and you can get exactly the same doc that was there. And our client said, you know what? No, no thank you. We're not that interested. Come back with something else or let, let's not talk. <laughs> and, and the large sponsor uh, called called our client back and uh, you know, <laughs> sort of came hat in hand. But eventually, you know, they ended up not doing the deal because I, I do think lenders, especially smart money lenders, 
don't want to get up tiered and, and and so people you know if you're coming to up tier don't expect that your new documents are going to allow you to up tier again people, people get smart to that yeah but that being said if you're doing a broadly syndicated loan and things look good yeah I think you get the same terms. I don't even think pricing's that much different. And, and so I think there's sort of, to me, um, two two sets of worlds out there. And, you know, depending on your asset class, you could have really, really different results. Peter, I don't know if in the broader market that you're seeing if, if that's consistent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think generally just it's been remarkable how um, – you know, even in so I, I mean, you know, most of the leverage loan and, and, and high yield markets were kind of closed essentially in the middle of March. But, you know, when it started coming back in April and then they kind of exploded higher in, in May, it's been it's been just remarkable how, um, you know, for the most part, I mean, you know, retailers and cruise lines and airlines, you know, if I, those documents have been a little more restrictive. But for the most part, um, yeah, we're not seeing any any real tightening of terms. Maybe, you know, certain general baskets aren't aren't available until delivery of, of September financials. But but, you know, black lines against previous issuances, you know, everything's the same. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I, I would definitely agree. I mean, I don't even know, you know, for for kind of the worst assets. Yes, th those documents have been tightened. But I mean, we're 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 seeing terms that, you know, are are, are just as aggressive as they had been last year. Um, and it, it's just, it, it's been surprising and, and, you know, you almost kind of feel bad for uh, a lot of these lenders. It's just, there's, there's so much money out there and it needs to go somewhere. And so a lot of these companies, despite, you know, at the same time as getting covenant relief, they are, you know, still getting, you know, pretty aggressive terms. And, um, yeah, so I, uh, you know, I, I definitely would agree with that. Yeah. I think that's yeah very consistent with what we're seeing in Europe as well. Um, in fact, ironically, Tyson Group, which I, which is the largest LBO so far this year, um, launched in June with the most aggressive covenant package we have probably ever seen. There was pushback. They did cut down uh, some of the flexibilities, but it still is an immensely aggressive covenant package. And uh, the last deal we saw pushback on the bond side was Stonegate, which is pubs. So, you know, that's not exactly the most robust sector at the moment for obvious reasons. Uh, and the pushback on that was that they bolstered their security package, but that was pretty much it. So it, it's, it's, you know, it's very consistent with what both of you are saying, which it depends, you know, depends very much on the sector and the credit. And maybe earlier these certain credits and certain sectors could have flown by with slightly more aggressive covenants. And now people are being more vigilant and scrutinizing their packages and their structures better. But but the not so affected sectors and credits still getting pretty nice loose covenant packages. The, the other thing that's kind of interesting, and I, I'll just note as an aside, is like the contracts keep on getting longer. With COVID, I feel like we add in all these COVID paragraphs and CARES Act paragraphs and, and, and all those. Um, but and you have all this detail and so I think for investors, that, that piece of it is important to note that you have all these extra long and loose covenants, but it, if a specific thing happens and it's not one of the things you don't have there, maybe you didn't mean it to be there, or maybe you should have meant it to be there and you should have thought of it. So even in these new deals, I think we're getting longer and longer and longer, which is probably going to put sort of going back to the sacred rights and, and the voting. Um, more pressure on 
you know, the yeah. people who are investing in these loans to know what's there and understand what it really means and, and how it works. And not only in the sense of up tiering and pro rata provisions, but just the general leakage and, and leakage opportunities, because I feel like so many covenants around asset sales and investments really would allow you to do almost everything. And, you know, and those are rec lender votes. And it's just important to, as we talk about subordination, release of liens, and, you know, what's a required lender's vote and what's pro rata. It's also important just to remember as these things get longer and longer. Yeah. There's a lot more words, but the words matter still. They try and legislate for everything. And yeah, as opposed to when you and I started Shweta and we used to have EBITDA means earnings before interest depreciation. Yeah. <laughs> Half a page long <laughs> as opposed to five pages long or something like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I generally I, I generally have a rule of thumb that the longer the section one after the definitions is, the more aggressive the the agreement's going to be just, you know, if you're getting into 10 pages on how you calculate capacities, you know, there's something not good in, in one of those pages. Yeah. And read the construction clause, especially in senior facilities agreements, there's, there's good stuff hidden in there, um, which will benefit the borrower yeah. and the sponsor. Liz, you mentioned a really interesting point um, about there being two classes of lenders, if you can call it that. One are the ones that go in when, you know, in the primary stage, and then the others are the ones that come in in the distress stage. And are there opportunities for the distressed group of lenders within documentary provisions? Yeah, I would, I would say for sure. And I, I, I'm going to put two, two, two things on it. One, obviously, all asset managers need to deploy funds. And I think there's sort of new money opportunities and old money opportunities, right? Some of the CLOs that hold stuff right now may not be able to hold it anymore. And so you'll have an opportunity to look at documents, but also for the sort of class of lenders that considers weaponizing the documents, understanding leakage provisions and the sort of end run around sacred rights might allow you the opportunity to go and sort of either shadow a credit and, 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 and and sort of find one of these defaults to use and, and litigate on a contingent basis. Or two, I think the other piece of it is maybe you can be helpful money. And we see a lot of our clients sort of shadowing in public deals and then coming in as helpful money because they understand the gaps in these documents. And I, I think you saw it in Murray and Serta and Not Your Daughter's Jeans. And what happens in these deals is a small group of lenders will come and help get a helpful deal done. And you can really immensely benefit from just understanding what is there and what is not there. Or if you have, I'm getting a little bit off the track here, but if you have um, the classic like J crew provisions where you can sort of leak it out, you can find new value and lend against new value. And I think a lot of our clients are, are looking to those provisions more and more as a sort of business development opportunity and, and a way to put capital in. And, you know, also I think sponsors are looking at those provisions as a way to find a debt or preferred solution for their portfolio assets where, where they may end up in a better position. 
I don't know if that answered the question, Shweta, but yeah, that would, I mean, that's really great because, you know, it depends on what your motivation is and what your perspective is. And you talked about value leakage and, you know, as a lender, you, you know, you, we would automatically assume that the lenders don't want value leakage, but a distressed lender might, might have some loose provisions that they could use in their favor to, well, let's say engineer the preferred solution with the sponsor. So yeah, and I, I was going to say on that note, I mean, the the one thing that might be an interesting thing to note and, and for people to think about um, more particularly is a lot of these sort of up-tiering deals and other deals are, are very carefully sequenced. And it's really important when you're doing those deals that you sequence it. One of the arguments that came up in CERTA was, should they have been able to vote if they were already getting this new stuff? And, and you'll see in a lot of restructuring support agreements and these agreements is you make sure that the votes sequence first and then you agree to the exchange and you get out. And, and so when people are thinking about those provisions, I think sequencing is really important because with the right sequencing, you have a rec lender vote versus if you do that in the wrong sequence, you could end up with those payments being due and end up at an all lender vote or all affected lender vote. So it's really important to understand that. And one of the sort of protections that we've discussed with people, but again, if the deal is hotly syndicated, you're not gonna get there, is you could require that all, you know, all lenders who consent to an amendment that, you know, that would allow for an up tiering not have their vote counted or, if they, you know, subordinated liens, make sure it requires the consent of all affected lenders, not all the class of lenders, and make sure it's each so that you as a minority lender have those rights. But again, I think those are nice to have because if you're in a highly desirable deal with a bunch of CLOs, it's just not, they're not going to be in those deals when you get into the, the long-term argument to get in court. Um, and if they are in court with them, then, you know, that, 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 that's exactly why, because someone went and, and was very creative um, in, in weaponizing the documents. Okay, well, that's very interesting. And I wish we could talk longer for, you know, we, we, the three of us could just talk for hours, I think. Um, but but that, 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 was, that was really, really helpful, Liz. And, you know, especially to explore the weaponization of documents and how that can be done. And also to end on the note that words do matter, especially in New York law governed documents and should always be read very carefully and thought about. So that, that, that was really, really interesting. Did, did you ha want to add anything at the end? I, I think that's right. The words matter. And although we had all thought we'd be replaced by machines, uh, you know, every variation really matters. And so it's important to understand the context and meaning. And, and so that's why you should definitely talk to the folks at Reorg and, and reach out to us. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and telling us about um, all these interesting things. And um, I look forward to hearing from you in the future. Thanks.